Namaste everyone. Welcome to the Charbuk Podcast. This is your host Kushal Mehra. So today I can officially say that after a good ten days of me having, so I land in India on Thursday. I think it was the twenty fourth, and then in two days I get dengue, <laughs> and then I'm done. And I'm now finally after a good ten days, I've uh, kind of recovered, and now I can do my podcast. So today's podcast is about a very specific subject, and let me give you guys a brief background as to why I decided to do this podcast. We had covered the Israel-Palestine conflict and a historical perspective and whatever is needed in that area, but I wanted to talk about uh, the the very specific issue that that is related to anti-Semitism. In my understanding of whatever I've tried to scan when it comes to the content around uh, uh, our landscape in India, uh, I don't think so. A lot of people are aware of what anti-Semitism is. What are the contours of anti-Semitism? What it actually means to be an anti-Semite? Who is anti-Semitic? And I reached out to Daniel, and I thought that um, you know. Uh, uh, we can have a podcast around it. So Daniel was nice enough, and he said yes. And here you are. So Daniel, welcome, buddy. How are you doing? Doing well. It's uh, twice a twice returning champion or three time champion of the the podcast now. So I'm I'm glad I haven't annoyed your audience um, yeah. away. Uh, but no, yeah, I think it's an important, time, especially for the Indian audience, because as I've said, like. My experiences with Indians, and it's nice, is they just don't understand even how to be anti-Semitic or any of these stereotypes or, or what goes in here, um, which is nice. And it's also like, you know, even like the, you can tell so that some of the Calistanis, like the Calistanis have decided to be anti-Semitic, um, but like they just know like Pakistan told them Jews are bad. So they don't even really know what to do. So they're just going like, grr, Jews, bad, Hitler. And it, it, so it, you can kind of tell that you know, they, they've been told to, to, to attack Jews, um, but they don't really know how because they're from India. Um, so it, it's a very interesting um, dynamic going on here. But it is sort of, I think, important to, um, I guess, go over the, the roots of anti-Semitism. So um, do you want to, I mean, where do you want to start here? I mean, so, so maybe we can start from the historical meaning of what anti-Semitism was, right? We, we take a historical look first, not the current contour of anti-Semitism, but yeah. historically how anti-Semitism has come up first so that people have a baseline idea of how it developed. And then we get into what's happening right now around the world. Okay. I mean, if you want to go to the phrase, like, anti-Semitism, like that was not a phrase invented by the Jews, right? That was a phrase invented by like German, um, Germans in like the 19th century, um, not to even describe like the whole Semitic language. It was like kind of described by anti-Semites as a way to like have say like to, to find a fancy term for being against Jews, which just morphed into Jew hatred. So when we use the term anti-Semitism, what we really mean is, you know, hatred or discrimination against Jews. Um, because it, it's not really about like, oh, the Semitic peoples. So a very common thing you'll see Arab and Muslim anti-Semites do is be like, how can I be anti-Semitic? Because I'm from Lebanon. So I'm also a Semite. Therefore, when I say kill, kill, kill the Jews, I'm not an anti-Semite because I'm a Semite. Ha ha. It's like, th that's not what anyone's talking about. Okay. Anti-Semitism means Jew hatred. If we want to, so I, I would first say that the phrase anti-Semitism and Jew hatred for the rest of this podcast can be used interchangeably. They mean the same things. And, um, you know, that that argument of, oh, I'm also a Semite. I'm an Arab. So my 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 support of massacring Jews isn't anti like that's a nonsense statement. All right. So 
I mean, you go back thousands of years and the original slur against Jews, let's say, goes to the, the Christ killing slur. So, um, you know, Jesus, um, you know, uh, is, is crucified by the Romans and, you know, three days, according to Christian theology, three days later comes back to life. And um, many people over the years have started to, you know, started to claim that the Jews killed them. Now, you speak to a lot of Christians and Christians who are not anti-Semitic, they will say this is blasphemy because Christ did not, Christ was not killed in their theology. Christ died for everyone's sins. Christ is God and he chose to make the sacrifice on the cross to, you know, basically open up a pathway for everyone to get into heaven. That's core Christian theology is, is no one actually killed Christ. Christ made this choice by himself to do this for everyone. Um, now, that, you know, th that's always been, you know, a, a thing that, that's been, um, you know, let, let's say used against the Jews uh, for a long time because, um, you know, different po political situations across Europe or, or whatever. And, you know, the, it, then Islamic um, theology also picked up on that and the Christ killing lie. And, and, and uh, they also blame Jews for killing Jesus. Ironically, they do not blame Jews or talk about Jews killing Muhammad, which Jews did not kill Jesus, but Jews actually did kill Muhammad, funny enough. Um, and we don't ever get enough credit for that one. Um, after Muhammad um, went around and, uh, you know, when they chant, Kaiba, Kaiba, Ayahud, Kaiba, and the next thing is, like, that's to remember the time that uh, Muhammad um, decapitated hundreds of Jewish people and then took them slaves. And then one of the sex slaves, the Jewish sex slaves he took, he forced her to cook dinner for him and she just poisoned him and killed him um, because she, he had murdered her entire family. Um, that one's a bit less convenient for the, the Islamists to, to embrace, um, funny enough. Uh, but they, they go on, on the Jesus thing. Now, Christopher Hitchens, I, 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 I remember, made a, a very good um, argument on why anti-Semitism manifests in Christianity and Islam. And, well, you know, both religions derive from Judaism. Um, right? Christians have the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is our Torah. Um, the New Testament is, you know, post-Christ. Uh, Fine. And then Islam comes around 700, 600 years later, and Gabriel, uh, the angel Gabriel allegedly tells an illiterate war, warlord um, that he has the final revelation that things in Judaism were prophets as well, but, you know, we've got something else. Both of these religions claim to have found, like, the Messiah, in a way, and then based it on Jewish principles, went to the Jews, and then were rejected. So our very existence... Um, in some way is is a bit of a spit in the face to um, their religious extremists where, you know, we were asked to convert and then didn't convert. And th there, there's something in there to, to certain people um, which will always sort of sort of drive a wedge there. So mm -hmm. you, that that could be like the 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 base of the, let's say, religious conflict there. Um, so, again, this is why most Indians have nothing to do with this, because. Hinduism um, has nothing to do with Judaism. And, uh, you know, you, if you understand, you know, again, Hindu philosophy is quite different than Islamic philosophy. One, the final revelation from God is here, everyone get on board or, or don't. Whereas, you know, Hinduism is sort of, there are multiple paths to truth, find your own. Um, that's, you know, you can see where one is more conducive to religious tolerance, one is less. So you, that's that's the general, okay, super, let's say, textual background there. And then you have 
medieval Europe, um, where this is where like the classic modern day anti-Semitic stereotypes come out of medieval Europe. So yeah. the you have the sort of Jews being distrustworthy. They were blamed for the Black Plague, blamed for all this, you know, blamed for your problems. But this comes from sort of like the financial cycle of Eastern uh, of of Europe and, and the Jews that that needs to sort of be explained. Uh, Christianity under the Catholic Church had like outlawed interest, usury. Now, it, charging someone, charging a single mother forty four percent interest on a loan is criminal. It's extortion. You're a bad person if you do it. But you need interest in an economy to run a functioning economy. You cannot have an economy without interest. It just doesn't work. It will collapse. Ancient world, modern world, you name it. You need some sort of interest to entice people to loan people other money. Because let's say you're a carpenter. A carpenter in, in, in medieval Europe could never get a loan from anyone um, because, you know, the only people would be worth it to loan money to would be a prince or someone with like legitimate political power who could pay you back with something greater than, right? Because like if you're going to lend $10,000 and then just get $10,000 back two years later, right? You just off inflation, you lose money. Uh, and it, so, so why would anyone lend anyone anything if there's no interest? So interest was illegal. And... Mm -hmm. Christians couldn't charge interest, but you needed interest. So what the, the solution was is, okay, Jews were banned because of anti-Semitic uh, from doing everything in the economy. They couldn't hold jobs. They couldn't hold positions of power. They couldn't be this. They couldn't be that. They couldn't be whatever. Christians could do all the jobs. They couldn't do, they couldn't loan money. So what naturally happened? Jews became the money lenders of, of medieval Europe because that was the only thing we were allowed to do is, is you know, come together as a community and sort of lend people money to have economic growth there. But this created a cycle because not everyone is able to pay back the money they owe. Who likes the people they loan money from? No one, right? No one likes pay. Everyone likes getting money. No one likes paying back money. This is a universal cross-racial religious bounds, um, goes back the first coin ever printed. You, you get what I'm saying. So it instituted a cycle where people would get mad at the Jews. There'd be unrest because people would be upset because they had to pay back loans. They'd be part of the majority. They claim, oh, this is unchristian, blah, blah, blah. And they go to the to the to the magistrates and demand, you know, okay, Jews either had to like start forgiving certain loans or or, or paying back or or whatever. And like uh, a tax was increased on the Jews to take money from the Jews to help finance the thing. Okay, well, now you've increased the taxes on the money lenders and forgiven some loans and, and forced them to debt. So what happens? They're the only ones who can lend money and they still need to make a living to buy things deep. Interest rates go up because they need to, all right? So then you have a cycle where, oh, no, well, now more people, blah, blah, blah. They go back to the king, da, da, da. This would eventually go to a point where eventually they would just say, okay, we're seizing all the money of the Jews. There would be a pogrom. You know, half of us would be killed. The other half would be forced out whatever belongs they could take. They take the money from the Jews. They exile the Jews. See, we fixed our economic problem. And then over the next 10 years, no one would be lending money. So the economy in that country would collapse because um, they didn't, you know, no one's lending, no one's doing anything. It would cause its own economic crisis. And then a few, another generation later, Jews would be a bit loud back into the country. They Then they'd set up the economy again. People could loan interest in money. The economy would be doing well. 
but then someone would be upset with a loan, and then the cycle repeats itself. So this was the cycle of, of Europe and every European country of, of exiles and all this and all that. And that that's like a lot of the Ashkenazi Jews. Um, if, if, you, if you feel like there's Ashkenazi and Sephardic, this is sort of the history of Ashkenazi Jewish um, uh, people. That's the one I'm from. Could um, you could you explain uh, uh, yeah. briefly the difference between the two for just yeah? The I mean, it's, it's more geographical and cultural. So both are Jewish. Like you know, both um, like it's not like Ashkenazi rabbis. It's not Sunni Shiite. It's not like a Sunni Shiite thing. So that's that's not what it is. It's more of a let's say sort of a geographical and like racial cultural difference in a way that Ashkenazis kind of got separated into like medieval Eastern Europe and like European. And the Sephardics are sort of the, um, you know, Spain and South. So it was like Spain, the Iberic Peninsula and North Africa. And uh, so generally, uh, Sephardic Jews grew up uh, under more Islamic control and Ashkenazi Jews were under more Christian control as a general rule, but not not 100 percent. Uh, different cultures develop, different foods, sort of different Talmudic interpretations of things over a thousand years, like different rabbi sects. Like the big one was on Passover, where Jews can't eat bread, leaven, like you need to eat matzah, not bread. The, the Sephardic Passover laws were a lot more liberal. Like Sephardic Jews were allowed to eat uh, rice on Passover, where Ashkenazi Jews, that was like you couldn't eat rice or corn or these things, kiniyot. Um, the, the Ashkenazi rabbinate just like went crazy on Passover, like banning weight, so many things. And the Sephardic Jews were like, well, what are you guys doing? Like, you can't eat rice on Passover? Like, that's crazy. It, now, but in like, you know, in the last 10 years, I, the Ashkenazi rabbinate has actually sided with the Sephardic one. Um, and, and, and so that little difference is done. But the, the difference is mostly cultural between Ashkenazis and Sephardic Jews now from, you know, 100 to 1,000 to 100 years of sort of North African, Middle Eastern cultures versus more European ones. So it's it's not a Sunni Shiite thing. It's more of a, let's say, racial cultural thing. Um, that's that's the, the gist of it. And there, there's more types. Like Aren't the Ashkenazis also more endogamous? They don't marry outside. That also is there a thing. One one no. uh, endogamy is a is is an issue in one particular Jewish sect. Only the Indians and one particular kind of Jews do not marry outside. Yeah. So the the the. Jews are not supposed to marry, I mean, Jews religiously, like most religions, uh, or at least the Abrahamic ones, are supposed to marry within the faith. So it's mm. not within your specific, um, you know, racial sect. But you could see where this manifest. If there's a very, very small population of Jews, let's say in India, separated from the, the majority of, of the other Jews, you would have problems there. But Ashkenazi Jews, like, um, do not have a problem with marrying Sephardic Jews and Sephardic Jews, Ashkenazi Jews. Um, like Judaism, like if your mother is Jewish, you are Jewish. And the way it works, if uh, an Ashkenazi and, Jew and Sephardic couple marry each other, it actually goes by the father. They then become Ashkenazi or Sephardic, depending on what the, the father was. Like that's sort of the, so th there's like a process of like, okay, which cultural tradi traditions and, and, and sort of pseudo religious differences are followed there. Like it's, like, okay, they're like, okay, Judaism goes through the mother's line and type of Judaism will go through the father's. It was sort of the, 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 the compromise there. So it's never been, it's never been illegal for Ashkenazi Jews to marry Sephardic Jews. There might be some sects. This is the thing with Jews, though. Once you get so religious, there are sects that become super crazy. 
um, like ultra ultra orthodox, right? There's like there's 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 levels of ultra ultra orthodox. These are the people with the payas, the beards, and the thing. Some of them more reasonable than others, but some of those sects are so hyper, let's say, insular, and they think their particular way. Because again, Judaism has so many rules, and the Talmud, it's it's lines and it, it's 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 a lot. Right? So some of those sects will claim, okay, everyone else is a heathen. We're the only Jews because they spin in a circle to the left before they pray to wash your hands. Whereas everyone knows you mm-hmm. must spin in a circle to the right before you pro- wash your hands, meaning they're not even Jewish. Like, it, but that's only in like the most super crazy ultra, ultra orthodox sects that some of them get into this. And that like, that's, that's, that's not really, that's, that's never been where the majority of, of Jewish thought um, has been. But um, yeah, it's Jews of Ashkenazi, Sephardic, Mizrahi, you know, like, you know, uh, uh, let's say in the 1950s, if I were to marry an Ethiopian Jew in Canada, that would be considered an interracial marriage. But by Jewish um, law, that would be an issue marriage. That's like, even though I'm white, she's black. um, That's like, you know, that's, you know, it's it's more kosher than me marrying a, a white girl. Who wouldn't be Jewish? So that's um, that's there. okay. So so we so I think we've hit these sort of this is where like the money grubbing Jew stereotype is. That's the medieval thing, right? This was the cycle of um, uh, kicking out, and and this is also why uh, in Jewish culture there's a pretty good refugee culture of how to come to a new country, start up, um, integrate, and like get going quickly and get yourself back on your feet. Like there's a reason why. Um, my grandfather, well, three of my four grandparents were born in Toronto, but my other grandfather, um, born in Poland, came here when he was six, you know, with, you know, very little, him and his brother. There's a reason why they started with nothing in Canada. And the next, you know, he became a lawyer and the next generation, doctor, like, successful. And then me, like, there's a reason why Jews can move to a, a, a new place and within a generation be functioning in the society and that's because for thousands of years we sort of have you know talmudic and cultural traditions of like you know sort of how to pick yourself up and keep going and you know support yourself within the community you know get educated um you know kind of keep going and you know it's it's it it's very interesting for me to sort of have seen a lot of like jewish traditions and like how we see the world and then like go to modern universities 10 years ago and 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 see like the victimhood culture and, and you know what they say about immigration and and how to treat these people and, and just saying like i i get it like I, I understand racism is bad and i i don't want to be racist but from from my experiences and our people like what you're t- teaching the immigrants now is how to fail and um you know like again there there's a reason why and this also breeds resentment to a lot of people. And this is sort of in the modern left, right? So let's let's talk about modern left-wing anti-Semitism now. And I think that there's the base and you can see like where the money-grubbing, greedy Jews control the world, it's a lot of conspiracy, comes from, you know, medieval Europe where Jews, when they were kicked out, would often be, you know, seen and welcomed by Jewish communities. You know, if they were kicked out of Belgium and they can go into the German thing and the German Jews would help and 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 then integrate them and help get them back on their feet. And, you know, maybe a lot of Christians, you could say, were jealous because, you know, there's two, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, oh, they had this built-in internal support system where 
or whatever, like when they faced massacres, they were kind of on their own. And then within a generation, the Jewish community would integrate and with the help of the local Jewish community and sort of be back on its feet and, and pull together and, and, and keep going. And it's sort of like the resentment you have when you like try and crush or bully a kid two years younger than you, but they kind of get back up on their feet every day and keep going and then get good grades. And like, you're not really having an effect. It kind of um, drives them a bit crazy. You know, and I think that's a, a lot of the root of modern left-wing anti-Semitism because, you know, they want to be the great saviors of the minorities. Uh, you know, you know, as Kushal, as a brown person, like, how could you possibly exist in this world without the help of a gender studies professor, you know, Obviously. Uh, making your bed and, and telling you a bedtime story and, and protecting you from all the racism in the world? I mean, you're helpless without uh, without them. But the fundamental p pitch of, let's say, the the modern left, more hard left contingent of the Democratic Party and, and other left-wing parties globally is, hey, racial minority group, let's say black people, because that's the, our favorite um, example if we're going to use an American um, frame of lens, which is what the entire world uses. So we go to, hey, black community. You're doing not doing as well as the white community. You are your economic success is not as high as the whites. The reason that is is because of systemic racism. There's racism in the ether. Give us power, we will fight the racism, and by reducing racism, your outcomes will be better. Right? Race, you know, hate crimes and racism um, equal worse outcomes. Well, there's a problem. Jews. Jews are a big problem. Who experiences the highest rate of hate crimes in America? The Jews. Jews. It's better than average economic success. Not the highest and not, you know, uh, but, you know, top five. Jews. Right? Also perceived to be much more wealthy and influential than we are. I mean, go back to those medieval stereotypes. So you have a problem here where if you want to make the case that racism equals bad economic outcomes, and this is how, this is your main economic social pitch which is pretty strident. And if you see that it's all over American culture, Jews are providing a big problem with our uh, thing. Because if anyone looks at this, well, oof, the Jews are being discriminated against more than the blacks violently, but they're not, they're not suffering the way we want them to suffer. I mean, yes, they're being murdered in their homes and stabbed and dragged out uh, in the streets and display with uh, the Nazi hack and cross, you know, put on on the doors but they have money they're not suffering the way culturally we want them to if they were poor and pathetic well maybe we'd care and then we could come in but they're not they have the audacity to continue to um, succeed and build families and communities and um, you know rise into positions of power and influence within society well how do you explain this if you are on on the progressive left well, it's it's not it's not Jews. It's um, um the, the Zionist cabal. It's not it's not that right. The world is oppressor and oppressed. So yes, they might be um, oppressed by white people, right? We the, the world will rally together during like the Tree of Life synagogue massacre, where it's very clearly a white supremacist neo-Nazi. Okay, this we understand. Even Rashida Taleb can stand with the Jews for for a day here. And, you know, this is bad. The Jews are oppressed by this. But in other metrics, you see, it's not, 
it's not the Jews we have a problem with. It's just a few of them, um, the Zionists, the international one, the ones exploiting the Palestinians, the Zionist movement. See, the way Jews are succeeding is they might be oppressed here, but globally there's a cabal of um, bad ones, just the bad ones, and they're oppressing other people, most likely the Palestinians. So that's how they're gaining monetary income is because on a sort of global conspiratorial level, you know, they are oppressing somewhere, someone else. You, you need to believe this in order to believe in the oppressor-oppressed intersectional framework because if you don't sort of rationalize a massive international Jewish conspiracy, well, then your entire ideology falls apart. So this is where good old medieval um, blood libels um, come in. Uh, the blood libel, by the way, is like the old thing where um, Christians um, would accuse Jews of uh, draining the blood of children to bake into the matzah for Passover. Um, this is sort of like the, the, the type of propaganda that was out there. Um, the Islamic world picked this up right away and, and, and they pushed it out there too. And I don't think we can really um, discount the level of Islamic anti-Semitism. Um, you know, it's, if you read the book, again, Muhammad uh, killed Jews. Um, you know, yes, you could, I mean, there, there are parts of the, the Quran which, you know, say, you know, Jews are the kingdom of Israel. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, Muslims, especially in the UAE, UAE now, which is trying to normalize, which are highlighting the verses of the Quran, which show that, you know, Israel belongs to the Jewish people, you know, the, this this thought that the Al-Aqsa Mosque, it actually isn't in Jerusalem. It, it was never there. Like, this isn't actually a, that holy a site in, in Islam. Like, there there is parts of the Quran that are more, let's say, friendly to our narrative. But there are parts of it which um, talk about what to do to Jews. And it, this is where we have it a little bit easier, you could say, than the, the, the Mushrik or the Hindus, where for Hindus, it's just outright kill them. Like, polytheists don't uh, deserve uh, to live. It's convert or die. For us, it was sometimes run away, convert, die, or pay the jizya and live as a dimmy. Um, so the yellow star that um, Hitler forced the Jews to wear actually was uh, first in from Yemen. He got that idea from uh, the Yemeni um, Islamists, where Jews had to wear a yellow star um, and yellow, and Christians had to wear blue to mark them as Christian dimmies. Um, you know, parts of um, Iran, I think, was it during the Saljuk Empire? Uh, one of them, I think, something more extreme. Jews were not allowed outside in the rain because if uh, we're unclean and if water touched a Jew and, and ran off into the ground or into the streams, it could contaminate um, uh, the land. So Jews were not allowed outside in the rain um, for for because of that. Um, and, and many other, like you know, this this myth of the Andalusian paradise. And like, listen, I'll give I'll give some parts of of the global caliphate some credit. Yes, sometimes the caliphate was less anti-Semitic compared to certain medieval Christian kingdoms. So yes, the the Jewish people were treated better under um, the first instance of Moorish rule, like when the Muslims came from North Africa into Spain, um, they were treated better than what ended up being the the Inquisition there. Like you can say that wasn't perfect though. We were still second class citizens, didn't have full citizen rights. It's not like it was what it is in the modern world uh, today. And, you know, even like Maimonides who like, lived in Morocco was complaining about uh, pogroms there and, and Jews being just um, picked, uh, you know, randomly put on trial to appease the people. Like often, you know, in, in Islamic world, this, you know, we were second class citizens. So if there was a problem in society, sometimes 
they would quell the crowds by just taking seven or eight Jewish leaders, uh, doing a show trial, and then publicly executing them in like horrific ways to <laughs> crowds doing that. So this myth of Islamic tolerance of Jews, like, yes, that scenario where, you know, once every couple years, a handful of Jewish leaders are put on a show trial and brutally executed and murdered for the entertainment of the crowd. Yes, that was better than the Spanish Inquisition. But, you know, you can't tell me as a Jew that, oh, that's, uh, you know, oh, you know, just, uh, you know, the Israelis give up Israel and return to the caliphate, become dimmies, you know, one state solution, live under Hamas rule. Like, you, you know, there's, there's a reason why we're not going back to that. Um, and this, 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 this idea that anti-Semitism started with Israel and Israel's inflaming tensions and, and, and riling up the Arabs. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. It, it's simply they don't like the fact that they lost a piece of the caliphate. They don't like the fact that they picked a war with the Jews. They had us outnumbered, surrounded, and outgunned and lost. It's an ego thing. It's an anti-Semitism thing. And, and, and no, one, no one buys it. Well, a lot of people buy it. But I don't buy it. And I don't give it any, um, any sort of um, sucker. So that's, I think, we've hit a lot of the, let's say, major... Um, you know, difference. You have you have different things. So, I mean, right now the the three big ones is you got like the far right. So that's you know that's your neo Nazis. We've talked about that. That goes back European blood libel, blah 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 blah. Also, it's the type of hatred everyone understands. It's like in group out group, and a lot of people have this right. There's you know there's even in India there's the scaremongering of the far right Hindu nationalists, and I've talked about how much of that is overblown. But in a country of 1.5 billion people. And no matter what Hinduism preaches, there are bad people that are want in-group good, out-group mm -hmm. bad. There are people yeah. who take beautiful Hindu traditions that should teach them to be tolerant, but they choose not to be. They choose to be yep. ignorant and self-centered and capricious and malicious to, to those who are not like them. That's a common human failing across. And I can say the same thing about Portuguese people. I can say Argentinians. I can say Moroccans, I can make that uh, Serbians, I can say Ukrainians, Jews, Christians, Muslims, atheists, like that, that's, that's a human failing that we are trying to eliminate, but exists within all of us. That's your sort of standard right wing, as we'll call it, anti-Semitism. And that also, you know, manifests in the same type of anti-Hindu bigotry, anti-this, anti-Catholic, anti-blah, blah, 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 right? Then you have the, the, the Islamist anti-Semitism, right? This is the... Um, Sorry, we we didn't acquiesce to the jihad, um, and um, it's a big sticking point, especially after 1948. The embarrassment of the the the, the movement to reform the caliphate under or a secular caliphate at first under pan Arab nationalism. Again, pan Arab nationalism is Nazism, um, but with a bit of an Islamist twist to it. And then you know the Muslim Brotherhood and all these different groups, and you know. Al-Qaeda, Hashal Shabi, Jamaat Islami, you know, all the Islamist groups, they, they we, we, we know what they say about our people. Um, there's that. And then there's the sort of far left anti-Semitism, um, which um, is, is born in, let's say, the anti-Zionist movement. So I think it's a good time to go into anti-Zionism now, as we talked about how the modern progressive uh, movement where it is. But I think we should go in the history there. Okay, so anti-Zionism is racism was a uh, resolution passed by the UN um, in, the, in the 1970s, late 1970s. And the United Nations is a trash organization um, that when originally started uh, by the Coalition of Free Nations actually was able to do some good and functioned for a bit before every nation in the world joined it and every nation in the world got equal status. 
Um, the United Nations works well to prevent the Americans and Soviet unions from going to a hot war, um, but it's an antiquated organization that no longer serves any positive purpose. Um, you could say, you know, even the UNHCR, which deals with like refugees, can be reformed into something uh, more functional. But 95% of the UN is useless at best. So you have the UN resolution. Once, right, so the way the UN works and voting on Jews is, well, the Soviets weren't fans of the Jews because they're militant atheists and cultural, you know, totalitarians. They don't like anything that could provide culture or history that isn't part of the Soviet Union, the Maoist thing, Pol Pot. And you know, this manifests, again, in hatred of anywhere. Like this, this is anti-Muslim sentiment, anti-Semitic sentiment, anti-Christian sentiment, anti-this. Like anything that wasn't part of the religion of the state was persecuted, right? They, they didn't like the idea of, um, you know, any type of nationalism um, because they believed in international socialism. This is the philosophy of communism. So in the um, universities of the Soviet Union, they wanted to undermine the West. And if you like, if you know Yuri Bezmenov, who the defector sort of outlined the plan of how to, how they take over America. No, they actually did a very clever thing. Like the first thing they did to undermine the idea of the Westphalian nation state is they started with the anti-Zionism stuff. And it's important that you know the definition of Zionism is um, the belief that um, Jewish people have a right to self-determination in their indigenous homeland, which is Israel. Now, this doesn't mean there can't be Christians in that nation, doesn't mean there can't be Muslims, doesn't mean there can't be anyone else, right? It's just the Jewish people have a right to self-determination in their homeland. Not at the expense of anyone else. Like, it's like Canada has the right to become a nation. Does that mean no immigrants? No, immigrants can come and be Canadian. Immigrants can come and be um, Israeli. It's just, you know, America and Canada were founded by Christians on Christian values, and Israel would be founded by Jewish people on Jewish values. And, you know, in, in Israel, there's 1.5 million to 2 million Muslims who have more democratic and, and human rights than anywhere else in the Middle East, including uh, every single Muslim-majority country. So that's the foundation of Zionism. It's the Westphalian nation state argued just this time the one Jewish example. And the, the, the concept of Zionism philosophically to me is the bedrock of like standard nationalism and the Westphalian nation state. So that's why it's really important to me. Like Zionism is arguably more important to me as a Canadian than it is as a Jew because the threat Western civilization is fail facing right now is, you know, enemies from within who want to tear down the fabric of our nation. Where, again, Justin Trudeau says we're a post-nation state. This is terrifying. We've seen what a post-nation... What does that even mean? You'd have to ask Justin Trudeau, but to <laughs> me, it, he, again, he said there's no core Canadian values. It means stripping the core Canadian values and replacing it with modern progressive gobbledygook. That's what it means. And this is a result uh, of years of push through our institutions to undermine the concept of the nation state from the Soviet Union, which started with the Zionism, anti-Zionism. So they came up with anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism and Zionism is racism, right? Inversing um, logic and, and creating new terminology. This is what communists are very, very good at. Communists are very, very good at manipulating language, creating propaganda, pushing it out there and consisting to do it. So a lot of left-wing anti-Semites don't have to think they can hate Jews. They can say, I love Jews. I have a Jewish friend, 
right? I went to university. I knew a Jewish person. I had dinner with them once and they were very nice and they were nice to me. But then the issue of Israel comes up and Jewish self-determination and they're anti-Zionist. And to them, they're the good people. Part of what, and I've, and I've seen this from, from left-wing friends I had in, in university is so much of their identity in the modern world is sort of tied up in this ideology of progressivism and being good and fighting for justice and all that. And it's really, really important to these people that they feel like they are doing good in the world. And that impulse by itself isn't a bad thing. The problem is what it's based on and, you know, the, the sort of modern progressive ideology. And when a lot of them are faced with facts that counter what they believe, right, whether you show them what Hamas's charter says, you know, the, some historical facts about Israel, you know, what happened in Hebron in 1929, you know, and, and you start to give them things. Like sometimes if you, there's people you can break through on, but I've seen it where when people start to see that, oh my God, they're enabling anti-Semitism and violent Jew hatred, they triple down because they don't want to believe that they would be capable of doing it. And it's a thing about, it's more about them and not about you. It's, oh no, if I really am an anti-Semite, then, you know, my self-perception as a human rights activist would be lost. And they fight tooth and nail to maintain that sense of, I would say, unearned moral virtue. Um, so they will double down and triple down and know Israel started it. It started in 1948, Palestinian ethnic cleansing, all resistance is justified when people are occupied. And you can go through and you can debunk the, the myth of the occupation and you can show history. Well, this isn't it is. This is what Hajime al-Husseini said in the Peel Commission. They didn't care. They, they even admitted all of it was legal. No Palestinians or Arabs were even living in this land that they claim. I mean, it's very important when we talk about anti-Semitism and, and, and the Israel thing. You have to know who Hajime al-Husseini is, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem um, in the 1930s and 40s and the leader of the Palestinian people prior to Yasser Arafat. Hajime al-Husseini, Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, was a friend of Adolf Hitler. Um, he met with Hitler um, in the, through the 30s and 40s. He even toured the death camps in Nazi Germany. After touring a death camp where Jews were, he saw how they were slaughtered and put into ovens and gas chambers, he loved it. Loved it. Wanted to open one in Jerusalem. Started having plans to uh, build gas chambers and crematoriums and a full-on death camp. Um, the only time ever thought of thought about industrializing you know the palestinian uh country and needing railroads and infrastructure was oh, this is a great way to mass murder jews he loved killing jews that was his goal he even went to um bosnia where there was a muslim population and because the nazis were having trouble in hungary with the jewish partisans attacking the railroads they couldn't get the people to the concentration camps so hajimin Husseini uh, raised an ss battalion of uh of, of muslims in bosnia to fight for Hitler. And those that battalion, which he was an honorary commander of, he wasn't a military mind, but he was an honorary SS commander. Um, so he was a literal Nazi. Um, they managed to push back the Jewish partisans in Hungary and reopen the death camps and, and enable about a half a million Jews extra to perish in the Holocaust because of Hajime al-Husseini. This guy was in charge of the Arab um, people in Pal uh, British Mandate Palestine. And you can see why it was very hard to come to a, uh, an accord with Jews. I mean, the Peel Commission, where there was a Peel partition plan that was rejected by the Arabs, um, 
you can read Lord Peel's writing. Um, Al Husseini, he he says Peel talks about the time of talking to Husseini about this, and the the complaint the Arabs were using was, "Oh, the Jews are stealing our land." The Zionists, like, what was happening is in the there was a big push by the Zionist movement. Jews were buying land mostly from absentee landowners in like Syria or Egypt or the former Ottoman yeah. Empire. They were buying the land or they were going into like the swamps, draining the swamps, terraforming the bad parts and then building communities and settlements and then sort of enabling Arab immigration to the area to work on these farms. Hajimin al-Husseini, and this became the Jews are stealing Palestinian land and kicking them off live. Husseini outright in the Peel Commission says, you yeah, know, they bought the land legally. No one was there before. That's not our problem. We just want to kill them because they're Jews. He said this to Peel with a straight face. He said, yeah, the, the, all the land is legal. That, we're, we're, that's a lie. We're lying about that because we want to kill them. This is the leader of the Arab, uh, you know, the Arab League, or not the Arab League, the, the Arab population there. So the British were like, yeah, Jews negotiate with this guy. Um, the Nazi, he says, I don't care about any of the facts. I just want you all dead because you're Jews. So this was the the, the leader of the, the Arab Palestinian movement and the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem. This was his position prior to the establishment of the state of Israel. So before you can even say, oh, Darius seen and this and that and the Zion. 20 years before that, the, the leader of the Arab coalition in, 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 in the thing was, no, no, our goal is to kill them. Then you had the Arab revolts um, where they started burning and pillaging and started attacking British soldiers because for decades, you know, things like Farhud, Farin, and all that, they would attack the Jews, right? There were constant raids where people would sneak into the kibbutz, even before Israel at night, slit the throats of the women and children, and then run out. Like, this was a nightly thing. Like, raids, Arab raiders going to kill civilians at night was a thing. Like this, but the, And the Jews were not allowed to have a militia because the British didn't want them to do that. So, like, there were underground Jewish militias to prevent against Arab raiders um, who were, you know, killing all the women and children. Um, you know, this this is sort of the 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 background there, um, and 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 you know, this is um, kind of you know, the the situation of Arab anti-Semitism prior to the state of Israel. So this lie that oh, it's all caused by Israel, and oh, look what you know, the Jews they were persecuted, and now they've become the persecutors. No. Like this is this is not. Oh, it, 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 history didn't start on October seventh. I one hundred percent agree. It did not start on October seventh. Look at what the Fedayeen was. Look at what the Fedayeen was and what they did and what they believed and what they bragged about. Not started in the early nineteen forties. The Fedayeen. This was the Egyptians uh, training militants in Gaza um, to go in and do these night raids, where they would go in and you know just again the same purpose as October seventh: slaughter and terror and intimidation. Not any military targets, seize the roads, get some things for grain supplies to flow. To, no, that was never the, the intention. It was always maximum maximize civilian casualties for the purpose of terror and um, sometimes divine religious rewards uh, um, thereafter. So that's uh, this. And then you have sort of the modern leftists who had to look at all this and were sympathetic to Israel because we were weak and pathetic Jews and we needed their help. But, you know, post-1967, when Israel showed strength and self-determination and the ability to sort of stand up for himself and this, this image of the weak, pathetic Jew now became the strong, independent Jew, well, then they turned on us, right? Then it became, oh, the, 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 the plight of the Palestinian people, right? 
So the Palestinian people were invented in 1964 by Yasser Arafat when he took the Jordanian star off the sort the star off the Jordanian flag and declared a Palestine. Um, and it's important to note that the original Palestine declared by the PLO in their founding charter, you can look it up, Article 24 of the founding charter of the PLO, they explicitly state the areas known as the West Bank and Gaza are not Palestine and have no, um, they have no, the Palestinian people and, and government has no claim to it. What they determine as Palestine is modern day Israel. That's what the PLO laid claim to. They said they had no claim to Gaza, the West Bank. Those were Jordan and um, Egypt. Um, Egypt was controlled Gaza, Jordan controlled the West Bank. There's the reason why the West Bank is in Eastern Israel, because it's on the Western Bank of the Jordan River. It's like this, this whole, like the whole, like, again, so if we want to talk about, you know, language is important. Like that's why it's called Judea and Samaria. Like that's the actual name. Jews are from Judea. Those are the Judean hills. Um, this, this not, this make a, made up turn West Bank. It's so silly. It's in the Eastern part of Israel. It's on the West Bank of the Jordan River. The name West Bank in itself shows that there is no Palestine. Well, Jordan is Palestine. I mean, if you want to re wrote, read the article I wrote on sort of uh, from the river to the sea, a genocidal etymology, um, that, you know, I go into the, the thing that the original mandate for Palestine was modern day Israel and modern day Jordan. The Arabs got 77% of Palestine in year one, ethnically cleansed all the Jews, and then complained and wanted more. So all this, it's about land. It's about that ethnic cleansing. What would you do if you were kicked off your land? What about all the Jews that were kicked out of Arab lands and Arab and, and Palestine, like Jordan, and then the West Bank? Is, you know, why is it only justifying um, Arab? It, it, somehow it justifies uh, Hamas burning babies alive, but doesn't justify anything Israel does um, uh, in response because only, you know, only one people's story is allowed to be heard in the modern world. Okay. So I guess we're going, I guess we have to go to left-wing anti-Semitism and you, you let's the Soviet Union. So you had the Soviet Union sort of create this anti-Zionism. Again, Jews were not treated well in the Soviet Union. Yes, a lot of Jews were part of the Bolshevik Revolution and, and wanted a communist utopia. And you can kind of understand it because they were promised, oh, a place where all religions are treated equally. Like the history of Jews in Eastern Europe, my, my family in Poland, it's like pogroms. Like just people would just come in and burn the place down and round them up and slaughter them and go. It was like roaming. Just sometimes people would get mad, find a Jewish village and kill half of them and burn it to the ground. And then, oh, we have to start again. So you can understand why the idea of this new multi-faith, multi-everyone's-equal utopia would be quite popular among um, the Jewish people. It's the same reason why I have some sympathy for a lot of, you know, black people going into sort of the sort of neo-Marxist jibbity-jabber of, of the modern world. I, I understand it. You face discrimination. You you might have seen racism, and, and you think this is is an out, um, and it's, it's a grand promise. I just say the promise is a lie. Uh, look at look at the history of anyone who ever believed it, and you know this is like sort of the moss to a flame. I'm trying to say, oh, it's it looks pretty. I understand why you're flying around this thing, but don't go into the center because, right? That's um, that's what's going to happen. So you you had the Soviet Union, which was you know deeply anti-Semitic um, in itself, and started to push out and pump this anti-Zionism lie, and and this became um, the sort of go-to of the institutions. And then you have the Arab money that's flown into the institutions of the last few decades, which is really sort of hyper, you know, sent that sort of anti-Zionism push into hyperdrive. I mean, any Middle Eastern studies course you would get in uh, Western University, you don't learn anything about Middle Eastern history. You just learn Israel is bad. Uh, you might learn um, America did a coup in 1953 in Iran, which is another lie. 
Um, it was Mossadegh who did a coup, and it was not the Shah who did a coup against Mossadegh. That's an inversion of history that we teach in, in our, our, our Western classrooms. Um, and, and this is what you get now, but because Mossadegh was like a socialist and his people learned how to get into the institutions and when they lost, like they, they formed with the Islamists and all that. So y you have a situation where the institutions have fully embraced um, the sort of anti-Zionism um, or Zionism is racism and being anti-Zionist is, is virtuous, right? So this is why you'll see like, you know, people will in Canada boycott um, Aroma Coffee Shop, which is a chain started in Israel, but it's not, the, the chains in Canada are actually not connected to corporate headquarters in Israel. These are individually owned sort of franchises, let's say, um, that are sort of disconnected from Israel. But a lot of them are owned by Jews. Some of them are owned by non-Jews. Um, but the parent company has a connection to Israel. So you'll see roaming bands of Palestinian supporters, our anti-Israel people, you know, vandalize it, harass the customers, and then say... But they post about it on Jewish owned Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. And and that's it yeah, makes that's no sense. More it's, it's it's what they want. So then they'll just say, oh, anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, right? Because if there's any like they're not gonna think this one through. Like if you really look at what you're doing, you're harassing Jewish-owned businesses and calling mm -hmm. it Zionism. And a lot of Jewish-owned businesses, yeah, you know what? They're gonna support Israel over Palestine. Jews don't like being slaughtered. And I'm sorry, if I owned a business, well, I, do, I mean, like, I, I don't, like, you want to boycott the National Telegraph as, as being pro-Zionist, go for it. Go for it. Like, yeah, um, it's, it's that. And, like, you know, are we going to be like, oh, this Jewish doctor, he's also a Zionist. Yeah, 95% of Jews are Zionists. Because, listen, our religion is based in Israel around the temple. Like, it's, a, it's you know, a good way to think of Judaism is, it's sort of like, you know, I guess like take sort of, sort of the Christian element and then kind of merge it with a bit of a, let's say, traditionally Native American element where there's like a tie to the actual land here and then add in a bunch of extra rules and, and costumes just for fun. But that's Israel. Like we are the nation of Israel. Then like, again, there, there are two, you know, you know, there's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob wrestles an angel on the ladder. He is then renamed Israel. Um, so we are the, the nation of Israel children, right? The blessing flows to that. He has uh, Jacob or Israel has a bunch of different kids. You know, the most famous one is Joseph, you know, Joseph in the Technicolor dream code. He's in Egypt. There's a whole musical about it, but his other kids, um, they form the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Reuben, Dan, you know, there's the Cohens and the Levies, and then you have uh, whatever. Um, so you had two kingdoms, right? One of them was Judah. So the kingdom of Judea kind of became separated a bit from the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Judea actually lasted longer than the kingdom of Israel, but they were destroyed by the Babylonians and scattered. This is sort of the lost tribes of Israel. This is where we think the Ethiopian and African Jews had come in. But there was also um, cross between Ethiopians and King Solomon, we know King Solomon had, had things. So we're not sure if they're lost tribes or just uh, they had, you know, pilgrims from the original thing. Like, but this is, I guess, the thing. So Jews are from Judea. We're called Judeans because that's like the religion, like Judaism, Jew, like doesn't, doesn't appear in the Bible, right? There's no, in the Torah, it doesn't say Judaism at all. Like it, this, this name is because we were Judeans in Judea. And we had a connection to the land and the temple there and, and, and the pilgrimage is there. And, and like, you know, the, the central covenant of, of Judaism is, you know, follow my 
commandments, you live here, right? This is the land, uh, the promised land in exchange for, you know, I will give you my commandments and I will give you like the rules to follow. And if you carry these rules forward and you keep my traditions, you know, you live here in Israel, you know, the temple and all that. And then, you know, the temples are destroyed. So there has to be a Jewish reformation. So Judaism reforms post-destruction of the temple. You get the Talmudic writings of how to, you know, live in a, right? If you like, if like, you know, Passover and Sukkot and Shavuot, you're supposed to go make pilgrimage to the temple, but the Romans won't allow you to go in or the Ottomans or whoever are barring Jews from making pilgrimages. Well, we have to find another way to express our religious views. And that's sort of uh, the reformation there. And, you know, so you have like these sort of Talmudic writings, which is, you know, just interpretations of rabbis, just sort of philosophizing for thousands of years, right? Just, you know, the old two Jews, three opinions, you know, give give rabbis a thousand years to, to come up with new rules. You're going to get, you know, 80 billion words of, of whatever. So, you know, that that's that's why there's, you know, different Talmudic things. And the Talmud is sort of the oral traditions and, and you know, the Torah is the written ones. All right, so you, yeah, so this is, we've gone a bit off the thought, but I think that's sort of the base of, we've got the left. So we have the left, the Islamists, and the rights. And this is sort of the triad of, of modern anti-Semitism. And, you know, honorable mention to the Calistanis who don't know how to hate Jews, but are doing it anyway. They're doing their best. Um, they're, they're working with the Muslim Brotherhood. They're learning. They're trying. They're not very good at it, um, but they are trying. Um, I have them, you know, but it's, it's, again, it's just like, it's very basic, guys. It's, Calistan is just Jews bad, Hitler good. Um, that's all they seem to know. Um, but you know, may, maybe in a few more years, uh, a bit more time with the Muslim Brotherhood, they they will be able to um, get it down pat. So I think we've covered a lot of it. Is there anything that's a bit unclear? No. So I, I so no. This actually gives a very good historical perspective. And but what is happening right now? So as of now, I've tried to cover the news as much as possible. We've had one unfortunate murder in France of a Jewish uh, person. Yeah, We've had the unfortunate death of one Jew in the United States of America who was Two. there in the rally. Two? Two. Well, there was a, a, a synagogue um, synagogue president in Rashida Tlaib's district, a, a friend of hers apparently, um, who was, they went into her home, stabbed her and murdered in her home and then dragged her body out front of the home to show off the trophy. Mm. Um, mm. And Rashida Tlaib couldn't say she was Jewish or a synagogue president or anything about her, but she was just generally sad that something had happened. And so yeah. that's how her friend had died. Yeah, that that's uh, that's Rashida Tlaib for you. And uh, Jewish people in their houses being marked, that's something I've seen happening across the West. Uh, Jewish businesses being attacked. Uh, first thing I'm going to do now when I'm back in Canada in the summer is going to go to Aroma Espresso Bar. Espresso Bar. That's my first thing that I'm going to do. I, and I read the news a couple of days ago. This was uh, when I think it was on the November 6th where I had read the news on the Aroma Espresso Bar being attacked. And, uh, you know, well, if you are in and around Toronto, Windsor, all those areas, uh, go patronize them, support them, give them business. There's also Cafe Lavender, um, which is another uh, another corporate chain that had started in Israel, but are independently owned by uh, Canadians, um, some of them Jewish. Um, and that's another one that got targeted um, because it had a Jewish connection. And Cafe Lavender kind of appeals also to a Jewish audience. If you go in there, like there's no pork 
Um, it's a good place for Muslims to eat too, right? There's no pork, you know, it's, um, you know. And they might follow kosher laws if possible, <laughs> which the Muslims should prefer. It, like, I don't think it's like strictly kosher, um, uh, but it, it's sort of, it, it appeals to a, a clientele. There's a lot of Jews who are like not strictly kosher, but they won't eat pork. They'll, they'll be half kosher, um, sort of, you know, not too extreme, but sort of like, I don't eat pork. I don't eat shellfish. I don't do this. Like Cafe Lavender kind of appeals um, to anyone who has that sort of, um, I just don't want to eat like, you know, I, I don't want to go to a restaurant that has bacon type thing. So that's, uh, you know, Cafe Lavender. Um, it sort of appeals to sort of moderate um, Jews um, there. Yeah, so yeah, it's a, it's a, these are Jewish-owned businesses um, that cater to the Jewish community um, and, and other communities, but they have um, links to Jewish community and they've been targeted for boycott and harassment under the guise of anti-Zionism and of course not anti-Semitism. Um, mm. But again, we should talk about anti-Zionism. If you are anti-Zionist, you don't believe in the existence or the ability for Israel to exist. Again, Zionism, if you believe Israel has the right to exist, you're a Zionist. And if you're an anti-Zionist, you believe Israel does not have the right to exist. So if you want to claim that you're not an anti-Semite, I will say 90, only 99.95% of the time does anti-Zionism equate anti-Semitism. There's a 0.05% chance it doesn't. And if you're a super hyper libertarian, let's say, and you just don't believe in any countries, you just believe in sort of general anarchy. And I, I've met these people. Like I met hyper libertarians like, yeah, I don't think Israel should exist. I don't think Palestine should exist. I don't think anything exists. I don't think there should be any governments and people should just be able to have their own guns and they should be able to farm. And you have your red eye and Rand and I fine. Like that's not anti-Semitism. That's just like a bit of a that's just stupid stuff. That's just being stupid. Right. But it's yeah. general stupid. And you're applying that stupidity to Brazil and Italy and Saudi Arabia and Israel. Not anti-Semitism. You just have some bad ideas about how the world should run. Fine. Fine. Such is your right. Right. But if you're going to say Israel must be destroyed and there's only one country where I don't believe in its right to exist, opposed to all other countries. Well, why, why, why Israel over any other country? Well, Israel's illegal. No, Israel's the only country that's actually legally formed under international law. The only country legal under international law, which I think is stupid. I don't like. I, I don't believe in international law for, for the most part. Like it's stupid. It's a it's a facade. There's one law in international law. It's might makes right, and like pretending otherwise, like it's a joke. But there's only one country that is legally valid under in, international law and all the different rules set up, and that's Israel. There was a UN vote off a legally binding British mandate. So the, the British agreed, the French agreed, the San Remo, the Arabs agreed, the Israelis agreed. Um, every sort of category you have under like, how does a country form under international law? Israel was formed by a bunch of lawyers, right? And Jews, and they checked every single box. Yet, you know, when there's a UN vote, right? The communists and the Islamist countries, because every vote matters, North Korea and South Korea have the same amount of votes. Right, they get to vote, and oh, international community voted that Jews are bad and Israel's illegal. Right, this isn't international law. This is just, you know, the bullying of the majority. And because there's fifty, like fifty-four countries in the OIC, uh, Organization of Islamic Cooperation, they all vote against in Israel. So right off the bat, you have one third of the countries in the world in this balance of the one third will always vote against Israel. Right? So you just have that as a base. 
and then all the countries that are subordinate, you know, and then you had the Soviet Union, which was wanted Israel to exist and a bit, hoped it would turn socialist. There were some things, um, but then turned against it as it became America. So then you had the communist blocks uh, under the Cold War because, you know, America and Israel more closely aligned, not perfectly, but so then the communists said, okay, well now we're against Israel too, because it's part of this global uh, Western uh, sphere of influence. So then you had all the nations under communism go into this voting bloc at the US. You had the 54 Arab countries, and then you had every country that was a subordinate of the Soviet Union, all of them voting against Israel. So when North Korea, Zimbabwe, uh, you know, and all the worst people, you know, from Pol Pot, Idi Amin, and all the mass murderers of the 20th century, well, they would vote Israel bad. And then, oh, look, uh, uh, the coalition of um, uh, Arab dictators and communist dictators say Jews are bad. Therefore, under international law, Israel is illegal. Well, no, that's not how it works, right? You've been accused of murder, Kushal. And I form a, 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 a coalition of, of 20 people. Um, and we vote... Uh, on whether or not you're guilty. There's no trial. There's no laws. There's no lawyers. It's just we're voting. And I say, you know, I, I don't like him. And I, I don't like him too. And, you know, oh, turns out seven of the people on that trial, uh, they have uh, anti-Hindu beliefs and, and they, they believe all Hindus are liars and filth and blah, 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 blah. Oh, oh, the, the, the people where, you know, uh, a large percent of them who said they would kill, kill Hindus, Oh, they, they all voted that Kushal is bad. Oh, 12 people voted Kushal is bad and eight people voted he's not bad. Therefore, Kushal is illegal under international law. That, that's not how international law works. Um, but that's how it is portrayed to work to the general public. All right, so every time someone says, under Israel's under in international law, anytime, it's, it's absurd, Right. There, 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 the, there are almost no violations of international law as written in the laws. And people go, oh, nobody, I got them here. The, 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 the settlements, the Zionists. Okay. One, Jews are the only people in the world where the world is obsessed over where we're allowed to live and what we're allowed to do. Obsessed with it. So, one, the settlement argument is BS. It's disproven by Gaza. In 2005, Israel removed every single Jew living and dead from the Gaza Strip. Not only did they take Jews out of their homes and give all the infrastructure that Jews had built to the Gazans, they removed all the Jewish bodies from the cemeteries in Gaza. Thousands of years of Jews there removed the dead. Because the argument the Palestinians are making is, listen, there's Jews living near us. How are we not going to do a genocide? I mean, think of it I mean, and I, I take this in your home. If you're watching, let's say, somewhere in New Jersey, is this the argument? The Jews are living a block away from me, so of course I have to commit genocide. How close would a Jew have to live to you for you to justify genocide? Now, like, oh, no, no, the, the things are stolen in the land. Okay. Hebron is a historically Jewish city. It is the, the tombs of the patriarchs and matriarchs are there. So when we talk about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Leah, Rachel, the founding fathers and mothers, the first Jews in the world, where are they buried? In Hebron. In 1929, uh, Hebron was a majority Jewish city, as it had been from, again, the times of the people buried there. 1929, almost 20 years before the establishment of the state of Israel, a roaming gang of Arabs rampaged through Hebron and kicked the Jews out. 
they were said, no, no, it was just uh, stay in your homes. Um, it's just going after the bad ones. Some Jews thought they'd be safe if they stayed in their homes and hid. They were not. After they cleared the Jews out, they went home, house to house and massacred these people in Hebron. Then when uh, Jordan took the West Bank in the 1948 war, they did what they did in 1923. In 1923, when Palestine was partitioned into East and West, they, they kill, kicked out every Jew. It's still illegal in Jordan. You can be put to death. If a Jordanian person sells his home to me as a Jew, they can be killed under Jordanian law. Same law was instituted uh, in the West Bank. All the Jews were immediately kicked out and forced out. So all the Jews were then fully removed from Hebron in 1948. In 1967, Israel takes recontrols uh, the West Bank and people return to their homes in Hebron. This is the occupation. These are the settlements. This is it. Are you going to say that Jews have no right to live in Hebron, where the founding mothers and fathers of Judaism are? The hills of Judea, the Judean hills must be Judenrein. Because if a Jew were to live in the Judean hills, well, this is an insult to the Muslims. How could the Muslims possibly stand this humiliation of Jews living in Judea? This is, of course, an instigator. This is what caused the genocide. This is what will cause the next October 7th. That's a lie. It's an abject lie. Again, all the Jews were removed from Gaza. They were given self-determination. They were just given a state with no preconditions because it was the last gasp of the Israeli left. And what happened? More terrorism, more mass murder, more anti-Semitism. There is a hatred, a deep hatred of Jewish people found in a lot of communities. Now, mostly eradicated in the West among um, good, decent people, but re returning in the new generation under the form of anti-Zionism and alive and well. The Hitler-level anti-Semitism, again, many Nazis, I'll point out one, um, uh, sorry, uh, Johann von Leers, uh, he went to Egypt, converted, became Omar Amin, you can look him up, who was one of Goebbels' right-hand men. Part of the propaganda Nazi thing. And a lot of Nazis went to South America to escape the consequences of the war. We know about that. What we do not mention is a lot of Nazis also went to the Arab world to continue the fight. Those who Nazis who wanted to continue to attack Jewish people, continue the, the, the thing, they went to the Arab world. And they helped with the pan-Arab movement. You can look up Johann von Leers and, and all this. So you have this um, Hitlerian level of genocidal anti-Semitism that has been pushed through um, the institutions of Egypt, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, you now see it in Yemen. The Islamic Republic of Iran in 1979 is another geopolitical disaster and they push this as well. You have this alive and well in the Arab world where they believe that they, it is their right to rape and slaughter and pillage um, Jews with impunity. And then they invert reality by trying to claim that Israel is, is so evil and terrible and malicious and it's they're doing for revenge. But I would argue it's, it's a lot of things like the leftists. What drives a lot of Arabs crazy is because we don't meet their expectations. In 1973, in October, on Yom Kippur, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, the Egyptian army and the Syrian armies worked together in a surprise attack of the Israelis, where the Egyptians managed to cross the Suez Canal, and win an initial battle and gain some territory. Now, this is still celebrated in Egypt, the great victory and the humiliation of the Jews in, in, in 1973. They got their asses kicked. They surprise attacked Israel. They gained some land. And then immediately the Israelis counterattacked and managed to take back all the territory. We're even pushing into Egypt. The entire Egyptian third army 
was surrounded on three sides. Their their anti-air, their SAM systems, which had given them some sort of protection, had already been taken out or mostly taken out. So Israeli air superiority was alive and well again. Half their army was surrounded back against the wall. No naval support, no air support. The Israelis, if they wanted to, and if they were any other country, could have annihilated half of the Egyptian army in a few hours or a day, just bombarding three different sides, eradicate near total annihilation of the Egyptian half of the army. They then could have rolled up, finished off the other half of the army, rolled into Cairo, put the Israeli flag on, sacked the city. Then they could have moved to every Egyptian city and sacked it like, like they wanted to do to Tel Aviv. Now, there is no doubt in my mind, the Egyptians had they had their way, would have sacked Tel Aviv, sacked Jerusalem, sacked Beersheba, sacked Ashdod, sacked all these cities, put men to the uh, to the sword, or gun in this point, raped in the women, and taken the children as slaves. And there's no doubt in my mind they would have done that. And they know they would have done that. But they want to build a reputation that we would have done the same. But history shows different. Because the thought of raping and pillaging and sacking Cairo under the, the Star of David is nauseating. And I don't I don't want to see it, right? However much I might be, you know, angry at Arab anti-Semitism, there is a part of me, I think a strong part of me in the Jewish people, that does not want to stoop to their level, that truly does want peace. And in a moment, we had the, we had the opportunity to annihilate Egypt, the great jewel, the strongest country in the Arab world, the people who for decades got into bed with the Nazis and were bragging about what they do to us. We had a knife at their throat. We took it away and we asked for peace. And this drives them crazy. And it makes them hate us even more. And that's a very hard thing for a lot of Jews to swallow. Some people are swayed by these arguments and some will learn history and see it and see the kindness and and, and defect and, and, and come through. And there are people who see that and, and are eventually uh, you know, deprogrammed from the, the decades of propaganda in the Arab world. But the vast majority, when they come face to face with the reality of what their people are and the reality of what our people have done, it makes them more anti-Semitic because it threatens their very identity. It threatens everything they hold dear. It threatens their own self-perception. And when people's self-perception is threatened, and remember, everyone's the hero of their own story. And when you're faced with the prospect that you might not be the noble warrior you thought yourself to be. Most people aren't curious and empathetic and understanding and, and, and really want to get to the depths of their soul and meditate on it. Most people want to maintain the image that they are the good guy. And when faced with information that they, they might not be, they double down, they harden. Um, it's like a great thing. There's a documentary on the flat earthers. Um, and you know, the flat earthers trying to prove the earth is, is flat and they do this grand experiment. And in the movie, the experiment fails. They prove the earth is round. By their own thing, they get the money, they do it, and they prove the earth is round. And then they all, oh, it's bullshit, they double down. And then they interview um, a mayor of a city, and he, he says, like, quite honestly, like, you know, I, I thought, you know, just you know, said, like, my social circle is here. Everything I know, like, the, 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 the people I have, it's sort of based on this, Right. So if you're going to walk away, like your family hates Jews, your neighbors hate Jews. You've been saying for years about the evil Zionist entity and what you would do and how they've done for you. 
And when you're faced with evidence to the contrary, you're not just giving up your own self-perception. There's an entire community that you're going to turn your back on. Like there's this one, um, you know, Palestinian activist I've seen now online who's, who's gotten a good amount of Twitter fame. His name's Jonathan Aziz. He's, he's a British Palestinian. And he's sort of taking the line of, I want peace, like Hamas are terrorists. You know, we shouldn't be teaching our kids about jihad. We should teach our kids about humanity. We should have empathy and understanding, and we should sit down and talk with you. He, he's, he's the Palestinian that's been promised, right? This, this the, the, the Palestinian we've all wanted to, to see as, as, as Jewish people. And he's not the first, right? I'm just giving him a thing, but he's lost his social circle among Palestinians. Like he's, he's more famous and, and gets more support from the Jewish community than he does from Western leftists or Palestinians. I mean, <laughs> he's the Palestinians that the leftists have been telling us exist. He's secular. He wants peace. He's against Hamas. He he he. He will say, you know, um, his you know Israeli military presence in the West Bank, you know, drives some of the problems, and 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 Palestinians face challenges there. He'll say all the things they they want to hear, and we want to hear. But they hate him for it on on the left, which is very interesting, right? He's the person that they've been claiming every Palestinian is. And he's the person every Jew hopes every Palestinian becomes. A man that I could sit down with for tea at his house, at my house, talk about our issues, hopefully solve it, and you know maybe have a laugh at, at the battle times once we have a, a functioning two-state solution. That would be nice. But yeah. It says a lot more about uh, them that they, this, the, the person they have, said the Palestinians become. They finally see what they claim the Palestinians have been, and they scorn it, and they don't want it, and they rather embrace the jihadis. And why? Yeah. It's very interesting to me the way the university ecosystem in the West has also responded to this entire thing where different universities have come up with absolutely shocking statements and I don't know about the Jewish students in those universities, how they do. I remember this one incident where uh, a bunch of students were stuck in a library. They were locked in a library and the only great solution they could come up with was keeping them there, apparently, because that's the only place Jews uh, could be safe. Or the every, uh, you know, every weekend nowadays, I don't know about what's happening in Canada, but in London, Amblons, every weekend you just have a rally until, very interestingly, uh, patriotic Britishers, they said, we're coming out with a rally now against this rally the Hamas, pro-Hamas rally. And then uh, the police is like, should we cancel the rallies? Yeah, I mean, the police are pathetic. Especially the British police are pathetic. I mean, they're 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 sitting there and they're watching, they're allowing the violence to go on. And yes, they're making arrests a week later. But your job as police is to prevent. It's, it's to get on the front lines and do this. I mean, it, I, I'm not sure if you've seen the Douglas Murray uh, interviews and podcasts. You've seen them. I, I, I mean, he said everything I, 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 I believe. Um, I think everything he said is absolutely true. And and heed his warning. When he says, like, if this is not dealt with by the proper forces, the police need to deal with this. The police need to deal with this, and they're not dealing with it. In, in nearly, like, again, there was just another guy less this weekend in Canada who called for a genocide of Jews. Police haven't done anything about it. If the police don't deal with this, eventually the people will. And that's the, it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Canadian establishment. When people are calling for the genocide of Jews, getting together, saying, kill, 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 
Same thing with Hindus, right? Panun threatened to blow up another airplane. And you've done nothing to protect these people. You've done nothing to protect my people. You've done nothing to protect the Indian community. You've done nothing to protect the Hindu community. Eventually, we're going to have to protect ourselves. Because I'm not just going to sit there and allow my family and friends to be slaughtered by roaming bands of Islamists. It's your job to protect your citizens. If you cannot do it, it will fall on us. I will not sit there with my with my neck out like a good, obedient Jew waiting for the end. We will go down with a fight. That is what it is. I, I will not accept my fate as a dimmy. I will not accept my fate as a second-class citizen. I will not accept my fate to be bullied and harassed and, and have all our religious and, and cultural institutions vandalized and, and sit in the... Like, no, we will not accept this future. So eventually, people, mostly Americans have guns. Canadians do not for the most part, but... Eventually, the people will start to take this into their own hands if they are not protected by the states. And you will see pitched street battles in the West. And that's the way we're trending in Europe right now, where they will, the, the, the way to stop this will be pitched street battles um, where people in mass and roaming, uh, mass violence on the streets. That, that's, that's the new way if the police do not step in. So to all the hand-wringing intellectuals, oh, no, Daniel and Douglas Burr are saying scary things. Yeah, scary times. Mm. Mm. People are celebrating mass murder. And, and the words are violence, crew? Where are you? Where are the people who spent years canceling everyone for any minor infraction? All of a sudden, the communists and Marxists who were leading the charge for um, censorship, they can't seem to find a problem with outright calls to genocide of Jews and Hindus. But there's still, you know, oh, libs of TikTok uh, follows Pierre Polyev's wife and she follows him back. Oh no, we got a scandal. Cancel Pierre Polyev's wife because she follows someone on, on Twitter that I don't like. Oh, that's that's where we're putting our energy now. So we're defending the people calling for genocide of Jews because free speech. But Pierre Polyev's wife follows libs of TikTok on Twitter. And that is dangerous. I see where it is. I see the game. I, I know what you believe. I, I am not going along with this. I am not... Listen, I'm, I'm a free speech absolutist. I believe in liberal values. I am philosophically liberal. But I will not let my humanity and my, my ideology be used against me. I know that the, the solution to what's going on in our streets right now is not liberal values. It's not. Hmm. And I have them. And I want to promulgate liberal values, true liberalism, to the world. I believe people have liberty. But I know the way we stop these people is not with liberal values. It's with courage. It's with honor, and it's with an actual sense of something deeper. Community, country, you can say your own religion, whatever it is you find. That's gonna, it's gonna, it's gonna require that. And we're gonna have to push them and fight them. And I hope it, I hope the fight is intellectually and can be done through podcasts and debates and public speeches and rallying the crowd and the power of the written word and the spoken word. I I, I hope that will be enough to fight them. Yep. yep. But yeah. That, requires the police to do their job. And if the police fail, then the army has to come in. And if the army fails, then the people have to come in. And then things get ugly. It gets oh, yeah. very bad for everyone. Everyone suffers. But yeah, I hope I hope yeah. it doesn't come to that. I, I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope it doesn't come to that. And I, I hoped I was wrong about what I predicted would happen on October 7th and the result to it, but I wasn't wrong. A lot of us predicted this accurately. Um, so heed the warnings of the I told you so crowd when we say 
if you continue down this path, things get worse, much, much worse before they get better. And there mm -hmm. are who will come and go onto the streets because they have to. It is a life and death proposition for certain communities. And it's also a life and death proposition long-term for the West. And people know this and people see this. You do not have the absolute media control you think you do. You cannot control the masses anymore through the CBC, the CTV, CNN, or whatever it is. There are people who see what's going on. They know what's going on. They love their country. They have liberal values, but they see them being eroded and destroyed, and they understand the consequences of this. If they take to the streets to fight the people currently, again, the Palestinian mobs on the streets, they're attacking, they're performing Kristallnacht, they're marking Jews, they're calling for genocide, they're roaming, they're assaulting and killing people. They're on the streets. They need to be stopped. If the police don't stop them, the army has to stop them. And if the army doesn't stop them, the people will have to stop them. And that means pitched ethnocentric street battles on the streets of Western civilization. And that will be ugly. But it will happen. It will happen if you let it happen for good reason. Mm -hmm. So if you are a hate speech officer watching this video and saying, oh, what's Dana saying? Shut up. Get off your computer. Get onto the streets and stop the roaming mobs of genocidal lunatics before we are forced to. Yep. It, it, and this is the sad part which nobody understands. Let us look at a few questions. So this is the standard question many people have asked. Why doesn't the left get it? Why can't they say through, see through this? Or they don't want to. I guess they are able. I think there's a combination. I think they don't want to. And it, and it, it, you would have to accept that you yourself have been the villain. And that's a very hard thing for a lot of people to accept. Right? I mean, at all, at, at all points in our life, I mean, a lot of us who are conservative, at some point we're more liberal in our youth. Right? I had like Stephen Harper. Um, as a kid, I was really into politics. And I just knew he was doing a good job. And like... Canada was killing it under Harper after the first thing. So I voted for him when I was 18. But I was more liberal. I, I saw Obama and I liked Obama. And I thought, oh, American Republicans, they're too far right. They're too crazy. Um, and then, you know, I saw Obama in action. And, you know, I saw the sort of media thing. And, and eventually, you know, I, I had to reevaluate my positions on a lot of things. And I saw evidence to the contrary. And then I reevaluated my positions on, uh, on where I sort of stood politically. Um, it's a hard thing to do. It's a really hard thing to do. And especially when you're young and much more, much more people are liberal, when you say, hey, I'm conservative, it's hard. Like, I remember, you know, in the comedy days when I would tell people I voted for Stephen Harper when I was 18, other comedians, because they, they knew my political views. Like, I would tell them my political views. I wouldn't say liberal conservative, but it was like classical liberal. And I talk about, you know, liberty for all and, and my ideas and the people ask me stuff. And it, it's this, but it's, philosophically liberal. So they just thought I'd vote for the liberal party. But, you know, the looks you would get when you say like, no, actually, this is like, I, I then became more public in 2015, 2016, when we decided to be more political and said like, no, the, all this stuff, this is why I vote conservative, not why I vote liberal. Um, that that brought you social blowback. People who were my friends unfriended me, stopped booking me on shows. Um, it became just easier to disassociate with me than, than deal um, with um, the social blowback. So there's a strong community, right? Your community is in the left. 
the left is very communal, um, and you're tied into this intersectional thing, and it's heresy. Like a lot of people know that you know a lot of people in 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 seventeen or or, or in fourteen ninety two, a lot of people didn't believe in in God. A lot of people did. I'm not saying whatever, but a lot of people you know did, who were Christians knew that okay, yeah, like I don't really believe in this, but they said it and practiced it because they knew that if they said anything else, they would be considered heretics and they would face the consequences. So there is, now it's nowhere near as bad as it is in the 1490s, but there is consequences for heresy in the modern world. And um, you you see it, right? And a lot of Jews face it. A lot of progressive Jews go, I'm progressive on everything else. I, I love social justice. I love communism. I love fighting for black people. And I marched in BLM. But why aren't the, why aren't my friends who I supported in BLM, why aren't they supporting me? When the Hamas attack happened and Jews being murdered, because that was always the ideology. You're the oppressor. You have more money than Palestinians. You might be your poor. There might be Palestinians with more money. And the Palestinian leadership definitely has more money than most Jews. But that's not how it works. And to come and support the Jewish people at their time of need is now heresy. So a lot of people won't do it. And there's a lot of, oh, why this and why that? A lot of people are afraid to leave the group. It's a strong, strong... Not just human, it's an animal instinct, right? Safety in the herd. And once you have a social uh, team built around you and and like, listen, if you, I've been swayed by this podcast and you're on the progressive left, I, I encourage you to do the right thing. I encourage everyone to call themselves Zionists. If you believe Israel's right to exist, I encourage you, a great thing to do is take up the mantle of Zionism because what the left and the communists have tried to do is toxify the phrase Zionism, where people will go, oh, okay, Zionism just means Israel's the right to self-determination, but I don't want the heat, so I'm not going to call myself a Zionist. I'll say I support Israel, but I won't say Zionist because I don't want some of the heat. That leaves it all on the Jewish people to, to sort of say, you know, I'm an unapologetic Zionist. I'll take up the mantle. Um, and that's what they've done. But it's hard. Like, if you've been swayed by these arguments here and you're on the progressive left in North America, you know what's going to happen if you share this video. You know exactly what's going to happen. You know you're going to lose friends. You know you're going to be called names. You know you're going to be harassed and potentially attacked. So most people who've been swayed by this will likely choose to nod quietly. Maybe they'll desist. They won't go to the rallies so much anymore, but they'll just walk away at best. Very few of them will sort of atone for their actions and 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 try and make up for what they've done because that will bring consequences that is heresy and you see what people are saying punish the heretics people to the cause traitors you see they're violent they'll kill jews with a megaphone they'll go into your house stab you take your body out leave it in front just to show it off as a trophy do you want part of that no that's scary that's terrorism so a lot of people choose cowardice yeah. Uh, one last question before we wrap up. Do you think the Abraham Accords, after whatever has happened now, do you think there is any hope? And do you yeah. think they can solve the problems? Well, I mean, it's it's not, I mean, solve the problem. I mean, the Abrahamic Accord is a hundred year plan to fight anti-Semitism, right? It's going to take generations in the Arab world to sort of deprogram it. I'm all in favor of it. Like a lot of, there needs to be some long-term thinking. So we're in like year three of an hundred year plan, which is good, right? We just need a hundred. So um, the UAE has shown that there is something here. Yes, they have to make noises about the Palestinians, but I'm very encouraged by the UAE offering to set up a hospital. That's very smart. 
That's very, very clever by the UAE. And it's, it's a huge sign of friendship to Israel that they offered to do that because it shows that they care about the Palestinians. They can have all that. But it will then allow Israel to say, here's an actual hospital controlled by the UAE who hates the Muslim Brotherhood. They hate the Muslim Brotherhood. They're not going to allow their camp to be a, a Hamas hotbed. So they'll set up an actual hospital where the Palestinian civilians can get properly treated, where the Israelis can sort of give an actual safe zone, which is what they really want, where the UAE, they can trust not to let in Hamas weaponry and, and, and fire rockets and actually provide medical aid to innocent Palestinian civilians. That's a huge, huge thing. And there's, and there's no way Hamas will allow them to do it. Um, uh, but you know, they will need international pressure. And you see the Saudis. The Saudis have said, after the war, we're going to continue the UAE, UAE courts. The Saudis don't like the Palestinians. The Saudi line is pretty clear. If you can read through the lines, you understand the history. The Saudis are saying, crush Gaza, and we'll talk. If you show your strength and you crush Hamas and you crush Gaza and you annihilate them, you will be a, a worthy ally um, and we can use you in the fight against uh, Iran and the Islamic Republic proxies. All right, the Houthis, right, who are doing the thing, and, and the Hezbollah, right, the supply routes. Saudis are saying, show us you're a strong nation that can act um, without American oversight and can be a, 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 a useful ally for us in the fight against the Islamic Republic of Iran, and we will be friends. This is the message the Saudis are saying. So, and a lot of people talk about the Abrahamic Accords, especially in, in um, you know, experts in geopolitics don't know what they're talking about, and they tend to look at the Middle East. And I, I mean, Indians understand this too. How often do Americans look at Indian issues through the lens of American geopolitics and American culture? All the time. How often is it accurate? Not a lot of the time. Same thing with the Middle East, right? And the Saudi culture is different than Americans, also different than Indian. And, and the way the Middle East works, again, might makes right. Diversity is not our strength. Strength is our strength. Weakness is weakness. Show that you are strong, you will build more allies, and you will be safer. Show that you are weak, you will be more likely and more open to attack. That is the game. So the Abrahamic Accords are resting on a total Israeli victory. If the Israelis are victorious, thoroughly victorious, crush Hamas, uh, defeat Gaza, humiliate them, and bring prestige to the name of Israel, the Saudis will enjoy that, and they will come, and they will make peace, and and uh, there will be you know uh, more lines there. But the Saudis are clearly open to peace. Um, for decades, the, this, the non-starter... Again, like after the 67 war, when Israel took all that territory, they offered all the territory back and just for peace. It's like, we won. We beat 13 armies in six days. You can have all the territory we gained back if you just sign a peace deal. They met in Khartoum. They said three no's. No peace, no negotiation, no recognition. For decades, the problem with Israeli-Arab conflict is the Arabs wouldn't even recognize Israel has the right to exist. That's changed under Trump. The, the recognition part has been given. So the fact that Saudi Arabia now recognizes Israel as a country and has the right to exist, and even is making noises about two states, even though they know it's all bullshit. This message is clear. Israel now has a right to exist. They've acknowledged their right to just baseline existence, which has been a huge stepping stone I mean, in, in, in the entire thing. So the to anyone who understands the conflict and understands the Middle East, the signals the uh, Arab states on the Persian Gulf and the, the Saudi sphere of influence is made, has already signaled that there is intentions to do this. There's just certain things need to be ironed out before we can get to the next stage, if that makes sense. Fair enough. Fair enough. I hope there's a solution because at the end of the day, there's just, 
you know, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle you are. I'm I'm very clear on which side I am in this conflict. I am anti-Hamas, and uh, I am clearly in the side of Israel and its right to exist. I mean, anybody who thinks Israel should not exist is crazy. But yeah, at the same time, you don't want to see innocent Palestinian children, you know, just become cannon fodder in this entire thing and it is all on Hamas before somebody thinks it's on all Israel in my view it's all on Hamas it is Hamas that uses them as uh, shields and as bait and uh, I don't know what to say about that but uh, I know uh, it, it's 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 a, it's a royal mess and I think a lot of uh, I, I've seen a lot of progressive Jews who have you know who've gotten a wake-up call in this entire process to me their reaction has been the most interesting one. Their reaction has been quite a revelation to me. Like they thought, oh, they would love us if we did this. Well, clearly they, they were wrong and they got a brutal reality check. And 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 what happens post this, uh, how does the Jewish community in the Western world outside of Israel react to uh, the blatant anti-Semitism, the aggression is something that should be watched by analysts and commentators for the next few years because that is going to shape western society and its geopolitics how they deal with two communities in their society the jewish community and the hindu community because the jewish community and the hindu community with its rising uh, importance in western society mm-hmm. not just uh, politically in terms of financial clout because the hindu community is financially well off there so it's going to be very interesting and couple that with you know uh the rise of India as an economic powerhouse is is going to be very interesting. But uh, Daniel, I wish you all the best, and I'm you know I hope uh, that everybody stays safe in the West. But yeah, uh, before we wrap it up, anything else you wanted to mention? No, I, I think you kind of hit hit the last point. There is is my my silver lining is I ha- I have seen is not so the other communities sort of uh, marching sort of to the front lines. Um, the Hindus, a uh, big one of them, like. It's the, I mean, I've been more involved, especially recently with Jewish Hindu stuff, but I mean, you see a lot of um, Iranian, like the the big Iranian, over the last year, the Iranian diaspora has really kicked into high gear and created a political movement to overthrow the Islamic Republic. So they have sort of an anti-regime organized um, movement as well that they spent the last year building. Um, and that's been very active and a great ally uh, to the Jewish community and to Western civilization. Um, so that's very encouraging too. And, you know, you're seeing a lot of victims of communism start to now come forward, like uh, some Cubans and 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 and, and others. Uh, and, and, and the the people who sort of said, you know, I, I suffered under communism, you know, they're coming and saying, you know, this is Venezuela, this is Cuba. Like, I've seen this before, you know, this stops now. So a lot of them are sort of, you know, marching to the front lines as well. So there, there is silver linings, and and I do have a bit more hope than I thought I would in in the face of Armageddon. Um, so th- that's nice, and and I, I I hope that you know we can find a way to work together as you know allies of humanity. And I've seen a lot of progress, and I think there's now a growing appetite to do this. Like. This is sort of my pipe dream of like talking about Jews and Hindus and, and, and Iranians and this, you know, this has been what I've been talking about last five something years of trying to sort of put this together and say, God, no, Jews, talk to the Hindus and Hindus talk like, 
and it's 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 nice that this is finally coming to an actual fruition and, and we're seeing um seeing a trend this way because it, it's the only way to it's it's i i don't see a way forward for the west without these communities uh coming together um in, in fighting like it, it's it the literal fate of the world um rests on you know the 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 communities of immigrants who came to the west for western values not to spread the caliphate fair enough i think that's a perfect way to end that guys we'll once again before we end the podcast uh, in the description whether it's on youtube or whether you're listening to this on an audio platform you will have uh, daniel's uh, x handle or twitter handle you can go follow daniel over there you can also check out daniel's work at the national telegraph and uh, support the national telegraph if you guys uh, uh, have not supported it yet go and check their work out at the national telegraph and as far as i'm concerned you know the drill if you want to support the podcast financially you can join the membership program whether on youtube or patreon or on fanbo or you can send your donations if you're in india through upi through kushal mehra at icici if you want to buy the charvak podcast merchandise you can go to the website of kushalmehra.com or on kadak merch if you can't do any of that and you're just someone who listens to the podcast or watches us on youtube just like the video subscribe to the channel leave the comment in the comment section and if you're an audio listener just leave a rating on spotify itunes google podcast whichever platform you use i'll go on trying to do these discussions and uh, let, let's hope for better days i know these are grim times uh, as far as the jewish community is concerned but uh, if you have an ounce of shame left in you please be on the right side of history and uh, i'll leave you guys at that time i'll see you next time take care bye